I'm Sonia Missio. And I'm John Doyle. And welcome to the first episode of Ahead of the Game, a new soccer podcast from the Globe and Mail covering every angle of the upcoming FIFA World Cup in Qatar. The tournament starts in just under a week and Team Canada plays its first match next Wednesday. So think of today's episode as a primer for everything you need to know before the World Cup starts, whether you're a casual fan or you're someone who lives for the game. We'll also talk about Team Canada's road to Qatar, their prospects heading into their first World Cup in 36 years, and preview their first match against an elite Belgian squad. For a large part of the Canadian sports-watching population, this is going to be the most excited about soccer that they've been. But for John and I, well, we've been diehard fans for a very long time. I remember the first time we met, Sonia. I had heard from you by email. You were doing some research into the theater of soccer supporters, the songs, the chants, the uniforms, the whole dynamic of being a soccer supporter. That interested me as a topic. We got together in a bar and we spent probably far too long just talking about soccer. And from that, a friendship was born. And we have met and talked about soccer many, many times. For me, this podcast is new, but punditry about soccer isn't. I have played the game since I was 10 years old in Ireland when soccer was the least popular game in the country. But somehow, to the great credit of the newspaper that employs me, I was an arts critic who was sent away to cover a World Cup in 2002 and simply write about it as a writer, as a visitor, as a fan. And since then, I've covered multiple World Cups, multiple Euros. I've been to the most extraordinary places in the world and seen the most extraordinary sights, mainly on the field, as players score goals and fans celebrate. And every World Cup is special to me. John, I have a little bit of an opposite way of getting into soccer. Growing up, I wasn't allowed to play because my father was such a diehard fan that if we did not perform well on the pitch, he probably would not have taken us home that day. But I fell in love with the game and I fell in love with it, as you kind of mentioned, from an academic point of view. So a lot of my uh, master's work was in fan culture and supporter culture and hooliganism and ultras and how people consume soccer. And and that's where I come from a lot of my standpoints of how is this game on the pitch being consumed by the fans? And from this, I've had, you know, my own sort of little career where I've interviewed everyone from Mario Balotelli to Sepp Blatter and gotten pretty negative answers from both of them, to be completely honest. And now we're here across from a table discussing the sport. We'll be coming to your feeds after every Canadian game after every knockout round, and of course, after the final, telling our thoughts, feelings, hopes, and dreams of what's going on on the pitch. After the break, we'll look ahead to the upcoming tournament, the host country, what to expect from the group stage, and the beginning of this World Cup. Well, Sonia, we need to talk about Canada. We need to talk about the teams that are going to succeed. We need to talk about a team that might implode. We need to talk about the matches, the goal scorers, the players who will emerge as superstars. But before we get there, we have to talk about the cloud that hangs over Qatar as host country. As you and I both know, this cloud has been darkening for some time now. 
For sure. And to just sort of summarize those controversies that is that are surrounding guitar, kind of breaking it down into two buckets. Number one, the bid and how we kind of got there. And then what happened leading up to the opening games. So essentially, Qatar won the bid after paying FIFA's officials lots and lots of money. Uh, that's probably the simplest way to put it. Because of the conditions in Qatar, this is the first time the World Cup has been moved to a winter schedule. That in itself is fairly controversial because a lot of players are mid-season right now. So they've already been playing for months on end and now are expected to play in a World Cup. Qatar was not necessarily a soccer nation ahead of time, which means there was a lot of construction to build infrastructure for this tournament. Stadiums, hotels, being able to get to places... And in order to do that, a lot of migrant workers who had come in to help with that construction, a lot of them have passed away under horrible conditions that aren't being recognized by FIFA and have been basically been told to be covered up. Additionally, too, it's how we now look at nations going forward of, of hosting football tournaments or soccer tournaments. It's who gets the bids? Is it places that should be holding them because they have the infrastructure in place, because they have the tourism in place, because they have the travel in place? Or is it going to the highest bidder? It's whoever can afford to pay at the time, and then we'll worry about the details later. And what does that mean to the future of football in general? Fair point, Sonia, and I know you to be a very fair-minded person. But I think we also have to acknowledge that there is another perspective on this. Put aside corruption inside FIFA, and we have to acknowledge that it was time, perhaps, that the World Cup went to the Middle East. The World Cup has been a Western Europe and South America dominated phenomenon for decades. It, there was controversy when the World Cup in 94 was awarded to the USA, definitely not a soccer country. There was controversy when it went to uh, to Asia. I, I can sense the other perspective too, which is people in the, in the Middle East and in Muslim countries saying, why are you ganging up on us? It was our turn. Absolutely. And I think there are Middle Eastern countries that have a soccer culture, that have a soccer nation, that are more deserving to host. The USA is a great point because a lot of people were surprised when they won the bid. And from that, a soccer nation was born. A few years later, MLS happened. The women's team grew. The men's team is now growing even more. I just don't know if Qatar has the same background and then foresight for the future that countries that have been controversial in the past also had. I, I think, and I, I hope you'll agree, that at a certain point we acknowledge the controversy. We look to the principles involved and how they have been undermined by this decision to, uh, to have Qatar host the tournament. But there's a point where we stop and we just wish everybody involved the best. We hope the tournament goes well and we start to talk about teams, players, goals, and the world watching this with the kind of enjoyment that is always reserved for a World Cup. Okay, John, we've talked about the host country. So let's pivot and talk about kind of everybody else. The last four World Cups have been won by Western European teams, as we all know. But this year, there's been a bigger focus on South American teams, specifically Brazil and Argentina, whether it's just the casual fan talking about them more, people recognizing or calling out their squads a little bit more, or even the bookies, you know, slating them to win. What do you make of this? Do you agree? Disagree? 
I disagree. Uh, You know, I look at some of these predictions and the betting odds, and I think that's fantasy football stuff. I understand the impulse to overrate Brazil. I think Brazil is always overrated going into a World Cup, in part because nobody pays that much close attention to Brazil from a North American perspective, from a European perspective, before the World Cup. They sort of cruise into it. So Brazil is going to be overrated. They have some a uh, handful of superstar players. They don't always work well as a unit. Remember, I was in Brazil when Brazil hosted the World Cup and went crashing out, humiliated by Germany. Maybe the situation with Argentina is a bit more realistic, but at the same time, I think it's wish fulfillment. You know, Messi's last tournament, uh, he's getting on well with the coach, which is often an issue for Argentina. Messi pulls the strings, not just on the field, but often behind the scenes. So out of Argentina, you have this sort of wave of optimism. I think it's overstated. In general, World Cups are won by, usually by Western European countries, because they are they prepare for the seven games that is a World Cup in a way that is not part of the tradition in South America, where it tends to be more about skill, score goals, overwhelm the other side with pace. It's one of those new world, old world issues, really, that the old European sophistication, the tradition, the way of looking at the game, in the end, that rises to the top. I agree with you on that. I think a lot of South American teams put that flair. They're the teams you want to watch. They play beautifully, whereas the European teams put their head down and get things done. And as a fan, I rather watch those South American teams. I rather see a spectacular flame out, but really, really, really good soccer on the pitch than watching a clinical France or a clinical Ger- Germany. After a while, perfection it gets boring. Saying that, though, I do think Argentina probably has a better chance than Brazil. They're coming off of a massive Copa win, and I actually think they'll get to the final. I know where you're coming from, Sonia. You're talking spectacle. What are you going to win this tournament? Are you going to conquer in seven seven games? Are you going to make it to the final with grit and determination, not just spectacle? That's why Western European countries usually triumph. But to go back to that Germany-Brazil game you were talking about, what made that game so special was that wasn't a typical Germany game. Germany doesn't blow out teams like that. How many finals do you remember that ended one nothing? How many finals do you remember that ended in penalties? I do think there is some performativity that, as an audience, we want to see. The World Cup is special. This isn't, you know, Champions League that is the top bar of European football, right? You only get to see these countries every four years play at a level that should almost be fun, that should have that feeling of a backyard pickup game in the local park, that these players are just putting everything on the line because this is their one chance. And that's the way that I want to look at at this World Cup, that it's players bringing whatever they have and not just running through drills and not being this perfect you know, machine all the time. You are such a wonderful optimist. <laughs> but I think that's what makes Canada so much fun to watch. You know, they they are a little bit um, immature, I guess, in, in their style of play or in their tactics compared to other teams. 
But that's what makes a narrative beautiful. They're out there giving everything that they've got. They take wild shots where you think, what is going on? And then you have somebody like Alfonso Davies that steals a ball off a line and just takes it down the pitch. And and that's what you remember. Nine times out of 10, a player would not make that decision because they're worried about the ball going out and resetting the whole entire play. But he's just going for it because he can. And I think that's what's wonderful about moments in the World Cup, those little tiny imperfections that really change and twist soccer on their head because we're not used to it. Well, I say, yes, all hail Alfonso Davies. But at a World Cup, you know as well as I do, sometimes it comes down to a a match that is being ground out and comes down to penalties. Next up, we're going to dive more into Team Canada. We'll speak to Telelotino's Camila Gonzalez about Canada's road to the World Cup, the reason for this team's recent success, and what the squad is up against in the group stage. Camilla Gonzalez will be familiar to many listeners from hosting Syria games from Italy on TLN, but she's also the producer of the remarkable new documentary Heart of Goal, The Rise of Canadian Soccer. It's a thriller, you might say, about Canada's journey to this World Cup and a wise, often funny look back at what has changed since Canada qualified all those years ago in 1986. Here's our conversation. Hi, Camilla. Hi, John. To begin, uh, Heart of Goal, The Rise of Canadian Soccer, the documentary was a risky undertaking. You and your director, your crew, did not know what was going to happen. When did you become a believer in this team? Was there a particular match, a moment from the last four years that you look back on and say, that's when everything felt different? So we were planning a soccer documentary for a while. It was it was a few years, but it wasn't until I, I'd say last year, around September 2021, that I personally, I went to a match at BMO and I saw the entire crowd, red and white. And I remember looking around and saying, I've never seen this before. I've never seen this much passion surrounding our men's national team. I think a big moment was obviously that Panama game with Alfonso's Davies goal. The crowd goes wild. And at that moment, you know that the Canadian national team is sitting on gold. You know that they can do this. Now, as the whole world knows at this point, it's been 36 years since Canada played. The men's team played in a World Cup tournament. Having done the documentary and spent so much time with the team, the background, why do you think it took so long? I just, I don't think Canada was ready for soccer back in 1986. I think it was still, it was too new. It was too fresh. The The players were semi-pros. I mean, some of the players were playing futsal or, or they didn't even have a team. They had to have a real job rather than playing soccer. And so the atmosphere of the sport in 1986, it just wasn't ready to make the impact that it is now. And, and as you know, we needed years and years of, of development and of leagues that came out and later failed and of, you know, broadcasters getting involved and and immigrants coming together and growing the sport. I think now you've got this perfect storm. You've got the perfect combination with the MLS, with the academies, with the current talent that we have, with, you know, social media and, and, you know, Alfonso Davies and how he has millions of followers on YouTube and Instagram. And it's bringing together this crowd of people to support the sport that I think 
it was just it's destiny it's destiny and i think we've got such a talented team and it's exciting to see them qualify for 2022 rather than just go into 2026 i think it gives them you know a lot more credibility on the world stage and i just think that in 1986 it was a different world canada was hockey canada was baseball canada didn't care for soccer until now well, you've mentioned some important names there, but there's one name we, we have to talk about. So when John Herdman took over as the Canada men's coach a few years ago, Canada was ranked 94th in the world and 10th in the North and Central America region. How much has his, has his leadership meant to the Canadian men's ascendance on the world stage? I would say everything. Every single person that I have spoken to on both the men's and women's team, they attribute almost everything to John Herdman's mentality. He, he's sort of this enigma. He's this legend. He he has this way of making people believe in themselves in a way that you don't think is possible. And it's unique because you you wouldn't really see a women's coach being transitioned into men's coach in any other country. It, it's unheard of. But Canada Soccer had so much faith in his program, in his mindset, in his coaching abilities that they've they've hired him on for this incredible project. And now the men are going to Qatar. Every player that I've spoken to says they would run through a brick wall for him. They say that he can convince you of anything, that he can make you tick, that he he knows how to make you play better, and that he is the reason that we're sat here, that Canadian soccer is where it is. And, and I'm just so excited to see what he can pull off in Qatar because I do have, I have a lot of faith. Now, you, you mentioned legends. Um, and let's say Alfonso Davies and Jonathan David have almost become household names in Canada over the last couple of years. But your documentary concentrates on the story of Jonathan Osorio and he becomes representative of the whole story about Canadian soccer. So why him? Why Osorio? I think there were two main elements that were important in in choosing Osorio to be our main character. The first one was practicality. I mean, we needed someone who we could access his family. We could speak to him on a regular basis. And while Davies and David are great players, like you've mentioned, they're in Europe. And so it's a bit harder as, as a small independent broadcaster to get your crew to go back and forth to Germany and to France. Of course, I would love that. But having Osorio here in Toronto... It was a huge bonus. And the other thing about Jonathan Osorio is that his story is very unique because he he represents everything that is Canadian soccer. You know, his family immigrated here 50 years ago. His grandparents had to make so many sacrifices for his family, his parents, and now him growing up through the ranks of Brampton, playing in Toronto, moving to Uruguay, like every element that you can imagine, every hardship that a young soccer player has to go through, he represented that. And so for me, it was an easy choice that he had to be someone that young kids could look at and see themselves in him. For you, when Canada is playing at its absolute best, what are the things you notice most? Like what's really clicking with this team? What's what's its strength? I honestly think that our biggest strength is our attack, 100%. I mean, you have players like David, players like Laren, players like Tejon Buchanan that are absolutely world-class. Um, and I know I'm a bit biased, but I do think that Osorio is incredible in the midfield. I think he's underrated beyond words. I mean, we saw against the Uruguay match when he wasn't playing, there was a creativity that was missing in the midfield. And I think that he does bring a lot of power to our team. 
as you know, our defense is a little rocky at times, and I think that's where we're going to struggle looking forward to Qatar. But the biggest thing that I think clicks with the Canadian men's national team more than any other team I've seen play is is their brotherhood. It's the mindset that they have. And I think this also goes back to John Herdman. I think that they play as a unit. The only players that could realistically on their own make a difference is David or Davies. Everyone else, you know, they rely on each other. And it's that brotherhood. It's that that click that they have. And you can see it when they're playing. You know when they're in that mindset that they can take on anything. And you can also see when they're struggling mentally. So I, I think without a doubt, we have a talented team. But when you're going to a World Cup, when you're going to play against these teams that have history, I think mindset is when we're going to stand out. I, I've heard it described simply as flow. This is this is what Herdman has managed to do. Uh, there are obvious strengths and weaknesses with mm-hmm. this Canada men's team. We're top-heavy up front with guys who can score. The midfield is solid. The defense, and this has been obvious for years, is not at the same level. So you compensate by making the, the, the team flow all the time. They're always flowing forward. They're flowing back to defend. That's, would you agree that is what Herdman's basic strategy is with this team? One hundred percent, and it looks like it looks like a like a ballet. And I think you said that in the documentary as well. And it's it's a ballet that he orchestrates, and it's beautiful football when it works, and then when it doesn't. Obviously, that's when we see when we see the Canadian men's team struggle. Well, uh, speaking of struggle, uh, let's let's be optimistic here. But let's talk about Canada's first match against Belgium. Belgium are an elite team, ranked second in the world. They have some of the best-known players in the world. There is also, of course, in advance, this sense that the window is closing for this, you know, golden generation Mm -hmm. of of Belgian players like Hazard and Lukaku. They're getting on in age. Now, this is going to be a fascinating encounter, but what do you think Canada needs to do to be successful against an elite team like this? I do agree with you. I think that this is Belgium's last shot of success. I think that they have, as you said, a golden generation, an incredible generation of players that we all would have loved to see win a Euro, win a a World Cup. But I don't want to underestimate the players. I don't think that the age is that much of a factor. I mean, De Bruyne is Man City's star player, Hazard and Courtois are with Real Madrid, and, and they're still at the top of their game. Lukaku still plays for Inter. I think they're going to have a tough, tough challenge, but... I think that Canada just needs to work on the mental game because we have a really great squad. We know what can happen in 90 minutes, which is absolutely anything. I mean, soccer is one of the most unpredictable games in the world, especially in a World Cup. We've seen worse upsets than Canada potentially tying or beating Belgium. And we saw it in 1986 when our team of semi-pros and non-professional soccer players put a really, really hard game against France with the likes of Platini. So I think the biggest thing that Canada has to do is just believe. And the biggest thing that the fans have to do is also have a little bit of faith. I think it's unfortunate when you hear people already doubting Canada and already saying like, oh, our only goal in this World Cup is to score a goal. I think as fans, we have to support them as if they could win a World Cup. And they need to feel that support of the red and white. Realistically, a tough match, but anything can happen. 
Well, I, I have one other question I want to ask you too, uh, Camilla. A lot of people know you best from hosting Serie A games from Italy on TLN. Why isn't Italy in this World Cup? The million-dollar question. The million-dollar question. And I'm also Colombian, and Colombia is not in the World Cup, so maybe this is why I'm I'm this optimistic about Canada, because I only have one team left to cheer for. Um, but Italy, Italy's tough, because I don't think they should have gone to playoffs. I don't think they should have had to face off against North Macedonia to get to the World Cup, and I don't think they should have underestimated North Macedonia. But I think the biggest problem with Italy is is it's their development system. I mean, you'll you'll rarely see a young Italian player playing in Serie A. You're more likely to see a young Spanish player or a young English player or a young German player. They don't seem to have the same amount of trust in their youth. And they put them through the Primavera Leagues, which is the youth league in Italy. And I think until they start investing more in developing their youth, we're not going to see a prime Italy because they've been relying on their golden generation, on their older players, on Chiellini, on Benucci, on Lorenzo Insigne, Ciro Immobile. They're older players and they may be talented, but you need to invest in the youth. And I mean, I guess it also goes to see sometimes your pride can get in the way. And I think maybe they were thinking about that Portugal match had they won and they were prepping for an ultimate showdown against Portugal. But when you underestimate your opponent... That's when you're at your weakest. And I think that can also be a plus side for Canada. A lot of people are going to underestimate us. Thanks so much, Camilla, for coming on the podcast. Okay, Sonia, this tournament is different for everybody here in this room, for everybody listening, for the entire country. Canada is there. And in the lead up to the beginning of this World Cup, there has been so much speculation about how Canada will do. The optimists ask the question, will Canada make it out of the group stage? Will it continue to play in this World Cup? Now, I have a theory. Now, and you know me and my theories. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the opening game against Belgium might be Canada's best performance at this World Cup. I think John Herdman will have primed those players. So many of Canada's players now play in Europe in the Champions League. They're not over-impressed by Belgium. They're not going to be overawed. And they're making the World Cup debut. Some of them will be playing at the very top level they have played in in their lives. I suspect Belgium is going to get a shock at how intense and organized and flowing Canada is going to be. I, I suspect Canada will do very well against Belgium. And then it will struggle against both Croatia and Morocco. I think there has been a misconception out there that, uh, first of all, Croatia is an over-the-hill team. Even if some of the players are reaching the end of their careers, Croatia is notorious for for its tactical sophistication. They control games. They control games in a way that no team that Canada has faced in CONCACAF controls a game. I also think Morocco is underrated. It's a young team. They're hungry. Morocco is one of those countries that has wanted to host the World Cup. There's an intense soccer culture there and an intense pride. Canada's best bet for a, for a good result and scoring goals is against Belgium. What do you say? John, this might be the first time I've ever agreed with you. <laughs> I think... 
everybody is looking at Belgium. And, you know, if, if you're not somebody who watches soccer quite often, Belgium is a powerhouse on the international stage. Um, they have players who are fantastic, world class. They are a team that, unlike Canada, is used to this pressure. They are used to this world stage. They played a Euro, maybe not successfully, but they played a European Cup competition not too long ago. So, you know, this team is excellent. They are primed. However, in Canada's favor, this is the first match. Belgium does not have to prove anything. And Canada really does. Canada has to come out swinging. I think it's important to say, you know, as Belgium is, yeah, is ranked number two in the world. But Belgium hasn't won anything. They haven't won a Euro. They haven't won a World Cup. They have a long list of great results, which pushes them close to the top of the rankings. But I, I still stick by one of my principles in entering a World Cup, whether I'm watching it at home or I'm going off with my laptop to cover the tournament. As soon as the, the whistle blows on the first game, the rankings go out the window. They don't really matter. They never matter, John. The FIFA rankings are completely useless. I'm glad you said that. Oh, my God, we're agreeing on several things here at the same time. <laughs> what matters often is the dynamic. The dynamic on the training ground before the game, the dynamic in the dressing room. Now, all of this is unknown to us. We we will never really know what's going on inside a, the, the dressing room before the players come out, or we don't know who might be feuding with who, or who might be upset about something. That is happening in the lead-up to a World Cup. I suspect Belgium might be ripe for one of those situations where it is not gelling together as a great team. There are great individual players, even the casual fan will know names like Lukaku, De Bruyne, uh, some of the biggest players on the biggest teams in Europe. But do not be overawed by Belgium. And I don't think Canada, the team, will be either. John, you and I will be glued to our TVs for the Belgium-Canada game. I'm sure texting each other as it goes along as well. But what's one other game in this round that you are diehard must see? Well, for me, Sonia, it's Senegal playing the Netherlands day two of this World Cup, match day two. And here's why. Senegal, probably the strongest team from Africa at this World Cup, and a particularly good Senegal team. They're, they're not an obscure soccer country. They are part of the elite. And one of the reasons why I'm looking forward to seeing Senegal play is, is a very personal reason. The very first World Cup that I covered in person, I was there for the opening game in Seoul, South Korea, 2002. It was France, the European and world champions at that time, playing Senegal. It felt like the world shifted on its axis because Senegal won, and it changed that entire tournament. It changed African football, I think, and that's a personal reason for me to just want to see Senegal do well, especially against the strong European team. The Netherlands, fascinating team, I think, right now. At times, the best team in the world. But something went awry in the last few years. The players did not gel. The players did not like the manager. Something always seemed to be amiss. But this team has come together, I think, under Louis van Gaal. There, he has a, a touch. He has put the right team together. I think 
If you want to talk tactics, there is the legendary concept of total football that the Dutch created, which for the casual fan you can explain as nobody is fixed in their position. The defender goes forward. The forward player comes back and defends. Everybody can switch positions. It's all about flow. It's almost ballet in the way that the Dutch can play football. This game will matter enormously to both teams. Senegal will want to make a statement, not just for themselves, but for Africa at the World Cup. The Dutch want to be back. They want to be back on the world stage. They want to be a team that other countries fear. It will be a tense match. It'll be a, a match of, of goals, I think. So that's a must-see for me. What about you, Sonia? The match I'm looking forward to is a little bit later in the week, match day five, Brazil versus Serbia. I think this is a really underrated group. I think people just assume Brazil's going to dominate it. But you have Group G, which is Brazil, Serbia, Cameroon, and Switzerland. All four competitors, really. And I think this is going to be one of the tougher matches in that group. And I think if somebody can walk away with three points, that's going to make a world of difference when it comes to the other games. So for me, that is going to be probably the most interesting game of the first round. Thank you for listening to Ahead of the Game. This episode was produced by Kyle Fulton with editorial assistance from Jamie Ross. Our executive producer is Kiran Rana. All the music you heard on the show was composed and performed by Chandra Bullican. You can find Ahead of the Game wherever you listen to podcasts. If you liked this episode, please subscribe, give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts, and share it with a soccer fan in your life. We'll be back on Thursday, November 24th, breaking down Canada's performance against Belgium, as well as other key results from the opening of the group stage at this World Cup. Until then, you can follow all of our soccer coverage at theglobeandmail.com. 